It's one thing to experience a sudden tragedy like the loss of a child or the discovery of some dreaded disease in your body. And it's quite another thing to experience the relentless misery of that loss week in, week out, month in, month out, or even perhaps for years afterward. Women have been known to lift automobiles off of their pinned husbands after an accident and then later collapse under the strain of the shock of the moment. And there's a spiritual counterpart to that phenomenon. In the stunned moment of tragedy, many Christians are given the strength to say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But then later, under the relentless, ongoing emptiness of the rooms and the chairs and the shirts and the arms collapse in dismay at God's hard hand. Soldiers have been known to have a leg blown off by a landmine and then run on the raw stump back to the ditch and then later weep like a baby as the healing pain comes. In one afternoon, Job lost his ten children and all of his wealth, and then shortly after that he contracted a horrid skin disease with boils that had worms in them and were infected with dirt. And he conquered in that moment. Chapter 1, verse 21, he said, The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not receive evil? He conquered. He was like Sarah Edwards. I think I've told you this once before, a long time ago. I love this story. The wife of Jonathan Edwards... 1758, she was in Stockbridge packing up. He had already left to go to Princeton. He'd become the president one month earlier of Princeton College. Smallpox was sweeping through the Northeast. He decided to set a good example for the students. Took the inoculation. It backfired. His mouth swelled up. He couldn't take any water and he died. 54 years old. A great and godly man. Doctor writes a letter to Sarah Edwards. She receives the letter, sits down, and writes a letter to her daughter Esther, whose husband Aaron Burr had died six months earlier. And she says, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband, your father, has left us. We are given to God and there I am in love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. But Job's faith, his victory was not rewarded with healing. Turn with me to chapter 7.
of Job. We're going to be looking at 29 chapters today. You won't be able to probably follow all of them, all of them, but some of them I'll want you to look at with me. Because he says something here we need to know. Chapter 7, verse 2, he says, Like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hireling who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness. Did you know that? And nights of misery are apportioned to me. Job's misery had lasted for months. And the question comes to us, and I know it came to him because of how he reacted to this duration. Why, since I got victory in the moment of tragedy, was not I restored or at least healed? Why doesn't this book jump from chapter 2 to chapter 42 where the restoration happens? What's going on for chapters from 3 to 41? He won the battle last week. And the answer must surely be that Job and we have a few things yet to learn about suffering and about God. And I know that those among us like the Agnes Starkeys would say that had this book ended at the end of chapter 2, it would be inauthentic and unreal. So let's look together at these months of suffering and misery that Job endured, and we'll begin at chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that he that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, They made an appointment together to come to condole with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from afar, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept and they rent their robes and sprinkled dust upon their heads and uh, toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. That was good. That was right. For the next 29 chapters through chapter 31, Job responds to these friends' repeated words of counsel. There are three cycles. Three times they speak, three times he responds. Today our question is, what is the author of these 29 chapters of conversation want us to learn? What's the main point and perhaps a few subordinate points? So let's walk together through this conversation. The thing that prompts Job's three friends to break their silence is Job's outburst in chapter 3. It says, the beginning there, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish wherein I was born. Now, that's a different sound at the end of last week, isn't it? Months, weeks had gone by. And he hadn't gotten better. Prayer after prayer after prayer unanswered. 
And he rebels. Verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should suck? Verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter soul who long for death but it comes not? Job can't see any reason for why he should go on living or why he should have been given life in the first place if it's going to be such extended misery as this. And he protests against the day of his birth. And who do you protest against when you protest against your birth? The Lord gives. And the Lord takes away. This is a protest against God. And when the three friends hear it, they can't stay silent. And so Eliphaz, the eldest, in chapters 4 and 5, sets the course that will be held through this whole unit of Scripture for Bildad and Zophar as well. He spells out a principle of justice which he applies to Job's situation. And he states it in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. Think now, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, trouble comes to those who sin and the innocent do not perish. Suffering is the result of wickedness. Prosperity is the result of righteousness. Now, Eliphaz, in this first speech, is the most gentle of all. He is a friend. He has come a long way to comfort. He did sit with him seven days in silence, commiserating with his friend. And so, in verse 17 of chapter 4, he softens his principle by saying that all men are righteous or all men are sinners. Can mortal man be righteous before God, he says? Can a man be pure before his maker? That should make Job feel good. And so he admits in chapter 5, verse 17... That some suffering is, in fact, loving chastening of God. He says, behold, happy is the man whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the chastening of the Almighty. So Eliphaz begins by giving Job the benefit of the doubt that perhaps what he's suffering, if it were but brief would be the chastening of the Almighty and not punishment for sin. But his application of his theology is very insensitive and very superficial. For example, in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he mildly rebukes Job. He says, but now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Now, that was an unnecessary rebuke to a godly man in suffering. 
It was insensitive on the part of Eliphaz, and Job will let him know soon enough. Then, to make matters worse, he insinuates that Job has not really sought God the way he should. He says in chapter 5, verse 8, As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. As though Job had better learn quickly from Eliphaz that the way to get rid of suffering is to commit your way to God. For, as he says in verse 18 of that chapter, God wounds and he he binds up, he smites, but he heals. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, there shall no evil touch you. Now, that's the superficial side of Eliphaz's application. It is simply... Too simple to say to Job, commit your way to the Lord and your fortunes will be restored. And Job knows it's too simple. It doesn't answer the hard questions of life. It doesn't begin to answer the question why some suffer in an extraordinary way when they have not sinned in an extraordinary way. Or why some prosper in an extraordinary way when they have sinned in an extraordinary way. It doesn't come close to answering Job's deep question. So Job protests his innocence in chapter 6, verse 10. I have not denied the words of the Holy One. And he returns the rebuke of Eliphaz in chapter 6, verse 24. Teach me. I'll be silent. Make me understand how I have erred. In other words, Eliphaz's simple principle of suffering comes from wickedness doesn't cut it with Job. He knows better. Now, when Bildad... Here's Job defend himself like this. He cannot be silent. And in chapter 8, he vigorously insists on Eliphaz's principle of justice. Even for Job's children. Chapter 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice, Job? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the power of their transgression. Your children were crushed in the hurricane because they had sinned, Job. And the same goes for you, verses 11 and 13. And the problem must be, as far as Bildad is concerned, that you're not pure. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8. If you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty... If you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and reward you with a rightful habitation. Job regards this party line as utterly out of sync with the way things are. Chapter 9, verse 22. Here's here's what Job thinks of this theology. Chapter 9, verse 22. It's all one. Therefore, I say, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of judges. If it's not he, who then is it? 
Job never for one minute surrenders his belief in the sovereignty of God. But it's too simple to say things go better for the righteous. Job insists that he's not guilty as charged. He is righteous. Chapter 10, verse 6 and 7. Lord, thou dost seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although thou knowest I am not guilty. Now, Zophar, been sitting there and listening to this, in chapter 11, he rebukes Job. For claiming to be innocent and he tells him to put away his sin. Look at verse 14 and 15 in chapter 11. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And let not wickedness dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. So according to Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar... Job is suffering because he refuses to put iniquity far from him. And Job responds in chapters 12 to 14 with sarcasm. Everybody knows these commonplaces. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Worthless physicians are you all. And he longs, he says, he longs to just have a a judge like God to argue his case. Chapter 13, verse 3. I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. And that's the end of cycle number one. And the next two cycles, when each of these friends speak again and then again, don't bring anything new to their arguments. All that happens in the next two cycles is that his friends get more and more bitter towards Job and less and less credible to us. In the face of Job's integrity and Job's realism, they eventually are defeated. Again and again, the three friends insist that suffering follows wickedness. Eliphaz, chapter 15 It is the wicked man that writhes in pain. Bildad, chapter 18. It is the light of the wicked that is put out. Zophar, chapter 18. The joy of the wicked is short. So you can just sum them up in a word. They hold fast to the party line. Turn with me to chapter 22. This is Eliphaz's last speech. I want you to see what's happened to this man the good friend of Job, since his gentle and mild admonition in chapter 4. Eliphaz, in his last speech, chapter 22, verse 5, brutally attacks his friend Job. Here's what he says. Is not your wickedness great? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. You have sent widows away empty and the care of the fatherless were crushed or the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Where does that come from? Those aren't facts. Those 
are the imaginings of a mind whose theology has collapsed and is incapable of handling reality. The vain imaginings, the attempts to justify a system that is lying in ruins at the feet of this man of integrity. It is so preposterous that when Bildad undertakes to make his last speech in chapter 25, all he can manage is six little verses of platitudes about universal sinfulness. And when it's Zophar's turn to speak, silence. The symmetry of this book is shattered because the theology of the speakers is shattered. They can't complete the cycle of speeches because their way of thinking lies in ruins on the ground. Their simple principle of justice has not been able to stand. Job is a good man. Yet he suffers far worse than many wicked people suffer. The correlation of wickedness and suffering in this world does not hold. And that's the main point of these chapters. The correlation of wickedness and suffering, prosperity and righteousness does not hold. In this world, that's the point of these chapters. But there's more. Something happens to Job in these chapters. He begins in chapter 3 in utter dismay. He's angry at God. He's rebelling against the day of his birth. But you watch him. If you're sensitive, you focus in on his speeches and watch him. Something happens to Job. Until he gets to chapter 19 and experiences an eruption of faith. I want to take you through his speeches just briefly and show you what happens. In every one of his speeches, he refers to death and Sheol, the place of the dead. He begins in his first speech in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 saying that he knows he's going to go there and it's going to be all over. He says, As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. It's all over. Despair. Let it come. His second speech doesn't advance him much further. Chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. Here he's responding to Bildad sunk down in the despair of death again. And he says, Let me alone that I may find a little comfort before I go whence I shall not return to the land of gloom and deep darkness, the land of gloom and chaos where light is as darkness. But in the next speech, something else happens. Chapter 14, verses 7 to 14 is his response to Zophar about his death. And notice that instead of saying it's all over, I'm going there, it's all darkness, 
He asks a question in verse 14. If a man die, shall he live again? We'll skip over chapter 17, but in chapter 17, he also asks a question. Will we go down to Sheol? You can see something happening. I'm not sure about this, but I was talking with uh, Dennis Smith after the first service. We were speculating about why it is that as Job relentlessly and successfully batters back the attacks of these consolers and shows their theology to be inadequate, something deep down is gaining strength within himself. Something is winning. Something is clarifying itself. And whatever the reason for that is, I think that happens, doesn't it? Hasn't it happened in your life that as you, with the little mustard seed of faith or grace that you are given to resist an opponent who threatens your faith, in resisting, a new strength and insight emerges So that when you turn away from that battle, your own thoughts are clarified and your own confidence is more deeply rooted. And when we get to chapter 19, turn to that with me. When we get to chapter 19, these gropings after the prospect of eternal life explode out of the ground of unbelief. Verses 25 to 27, in chapter 19, Job says, For I know, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, then from my flesh, or apart from my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. So Job is finally sure that even if it takes through death, he's going to meet God as a redeemer and not as an angry judge, which his friends continually tell him his God is. He will be redeemed from his misery. Sheol will not simply be darkness and death. It will be life and light. Now, this confidence does not solve his problems totally. He still is utterly perplexed why he should have to go on suffering. And he talks about it right on through chapter 31. But his confidence in the eternality and the reversal of his life in the age to come enables him to hold fast to three things that he cherishes very much. God's sovereignty... God's justice and his own integrity. He is a faithful man. He has not abandoned his God. And holding on to those, he is able to resist a false theology. Now, I'd like to close by spelling out very briefly five lessons that I learn for myself and for us as a church from these chapters. Lesson number one, true theological statements can be false. True theological statements 
can be false. You read these chapters, like I was talking with Mike earlier, and these guys, they sound good most of the time. It perplexes you as you read through this book. Where's good theology and where's bad theology? It's mostly good theology. Wrongly applied, insensitively, unlovingly, superficially applied to the situation of Job. A little learning, Alexander Pope said, is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Perean spring. Or the way the Bible puts it, like a thorn that that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. You take a true proverb, a blessed, true, wonderful proverb, put it in the mouth of fools and it can kill a man. Just like they were trying to kill Job with so many true statements. So lesson number one for us is we put a high premium at Bethlehem on good, True, solid, deep theology. Let us be warned. You can kill people with good theology. Drink deep at the fountain of God's truth. Or keep your mouth shut. And put love as a watchman at the gate of your mouth. Lest you learn some new thing. And run off and clobber somebody over the head with it. Lesson number two, suffering and prosperity are not distributed in the world in proportion to the evil or good that you do. Suffering and prosperity are not proportioned out by God to you according to the proportion of evil and good that you do. Job is right. That's the point of these chapters. Job is right. The wicked are spared in the day of calamity. The just and blameless man is a laughing stock in his suffering. Therefore, here's the lesson. Let us not judge one another before the time. The best among us may be suffering the most. And the one who is prospering the most may be the worst among us. Lesson number three. Nevertheless, God reigns over all the affairs of men, from the greatest to the smallest. It is amazing to me that the most common means used in our day To solve the problem of suffering never for one second entered into the mind of Job or his friends. Namely, the limitation of the sovereignty of God. You read this book with a fine tooth comb, you will not find one sentence out of the mouth of Job out of the mouth of God, out of the mouth of Zophar, Bildad, Eliphaz, or Elihu, or Job's wife, 
that God is anything but in sovereign control of every detail in the universe. And yet today, on every hand, that is the solution to which people come. We live in an incredibly man-centered age. You can't overemphasize the man-centeredness of our age. God couldn't have willed the death of that child. God couldn't have willed that typhoon. God couldn't have willed this sickness. Therefore, he's out of control. And Satan has the upper hand, at least for now. Brothers and sisters, Job and his three friends never even thought of the possibility. Where have we come to? Lesson number four. Behind this sovereignty, there is a wisdom hidden from man. Chapter 28 says, verse 12, Where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know the way to it, and it is not found in the land of the living, but God, verse 23, God understands the way to it, and He knows its place. Brothers and sisters, even from our New Testament perspective, we we see through a glass darkly. And so the lesson for us is let us be slow to judge God as capricious or arbitrary or hostile or cruel or foolish or out of control. Let us suspend judgment if we cannot see our way through to the wisdom of God in all that he does. It may appear... Arbitrary. It may appear chaotic, but everything he does are the tactics of infinite wisdom. Which leads me to the last lesson. Number five, therefore, let us hold fast to God, no matter what. If thou but suffer God to guide thee and hope in him through all thy ways... He'll give thee strength whate'er betide thee and see thee through the evil days. Who hopes in God's unchanging love builds on a rock that naught can move. That's our theme hymn for the month. It's printed on your insert. Today, let's sing verses 1, 6, and 7 together. Shall we stand as we sing? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to keep you in the hour of trial and suffering, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.